there are moments in life when the joy of the blessing is, inter- is intermingled with the weight of the responsibility. It's like when you get married, there's this blessing, but there's also this weight. Maybe holding your child for the first time, hopefully. Blessing, but wait. And I feel that way a little bit with Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Blessing intermingled with weight. With wait. Let's go ahead and open your Bibles there. Read, I'm going to read Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And you'll see what I mean in just a minute. I'll pick it up in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that all of God's word is sacred, but there's a compactness here in Philippians 2, 6-11. through 11. It's kind of like walking into a vault full of gold and jewelry. It's all irreplaceable, priceless riches, intricately crafted from floor to ceiling. And you can imagine walking into the vault, and, and that's kind of what I feel looking at this passage. Everything here is so rich and so weighty and so beautiful. I do feel a little like a, a priest in the New Testament temple. They were given a lot once in their lifetime to go and serve inside the temple, like, like Zacharias in the beginning of Luke, bringing incense, and he wants to get it right, right? You don't want to drop it. And I, and, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get to preach this passage again, so I appreciate uh, your prayers even as we prayed together here, uh, that, that we, we get God's word right, and that we don't treat it as common, but that we leave transformed by it. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the blessing of your word. I thank you for this this treasure vault that uh, Paul uh, places skillfully in this letter. And it's so rich and so weighty and it's such a blessing. Father, to think that that there are, are millions around this world who will never get to hear these words, Lord, and yet someday we'll see the reality of Christ exalted is just such a sobering and humbling thought that we get to, to be here this morning with your word opened. And Lord, we just pray, Father, for hearts that are, are teachable and that we'd be transformed by your word, that we would obey what your apostle has commanded here, that we have the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that part of the challenge of this passage this theologically weighty passage, is is that Paul precedes it with an apparently simple command in verse 5. Philippians 2.5, in a sense, it's so simple. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What follows in Philippians 2.6-8, which is what we're going to be focusing on this morning, is Paul exploring what the attitude of Christ is. So to review our context here, as we, we, we've gone intermittently through, through the book of Philippians, Paul is in prison. He's on trial, waiting trial, waiting trial before Nero. He's in prison regarding the legality of proclaiming Christ. He's writing to a church in Philippi in eastern Greece that he had planted approximately 10 years prior. He had an excellent ongoing relationship with this church. The church had faithfully supported Paul, even while he was in prison. But the pressure of persecution was starting to weigh down the church in Philippi. The church was beginning to be tempted to buckle under pressure from without and to fracture from the strain within. In Philippians 1.27, Paul starts his exhortation to the church. He begins in verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then in Philippians 27 to 30, Paul explains what that life lived appropriately to the gospel would look like. So he focuses on the Philippians' testimony in the midst of opposition, verses 27 to 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So he's encouraging them about their testimony in front of a hostile world in verses 27 to 30. Verses 1 through 4, Paul puts the focus on the relationships inside the church and their relationships with one another. I'll read verses uh, 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And that brings us right up to that command in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The attitude that Paul is talking about when he says have this attitude looks to verses 3 and 4. It's that doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Not looking out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. And then the model of that attitude is following in verses 6 through 8. So in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, by God's grace, we're going to examine the extent of Jesus' humility so that we can follow his example. That's really what Paul says is the purpose here. Have this attitude among yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Now often I'm leery, and you maybe be too, of be like Jesus messages, right? But this is one of those where Paul literally says, think like Jesus. That is the point of this passage that follows, is that we are to think like Jesus. And I, I, I think, uh, and it should, that this is going to be an uncomfortable message for us. Because we're supposed to be like Jesus. If I wanted to learn how to play basketball, it'd be cruel of one of you, probably be cruel to try to play basketball with me, but uh, it'd be cruel to show me clips of Steph Curry or, or LeBron James and say, just do what they do. Right? That, that, that would not be loving. If I wanted to learn how to throw a football, it would be unkind to show me Gamriel of Aiden Rodgers, not just because I prefer the Seahawks. If I wanted to learn how to paint, you wouldn't take me to a museum and just show me Rembrandt's and say, now go and do it. That would crush the aspiring athlete or the aspiring artist in me. I'm not going to play some, some famous recording of Chopin for my daughter and say, no, just try that as she's on her third piano lesson. But Paul apparently doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have that same ethical dilemma that we would face doing that to someone. So Paul sets before us the ultimate example of humility and tells us to emulate our Lord Jesus. So first we're going to look at the extent of Jesus' humility, and then we're going to be exhorted toward Jesus' humility. And Lord willing, we'll follow up in verses 9 through 11 next week with the exaltation of Jesus. Now, before we start, though, I want to make clear that we can't be like the Lord Jesus without union with the Lord Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you have new life in Christ, you have been incorporated into Christ. You are inseparable from him through the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Galatians 2.20 just gives a little bit of this mystery. As the Apostle Paul says, that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. Christ lives in me. That's, that's mind-blowing. Through God's Spirit, if we have true life, if we have believed in him, we have Christ living in us. Romans 6, 4 explores this reality. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As Heath Lambert said, his death and resurrection is your death and re resurrection. And that's good news because of our union with Christ, we have this capacity for new life. 
If God has given you new life in Christ this morning, you have the unlimited resources in him to be like him. In this life, you will not be like Christ fully, but you will be like him truly if you have been unified with him. Now, we do have to choose to obey. But part of the way that we become transformed into the image of Christ is by beholding Christ, is by seeing him. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That as we see Christ, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. So that's what we want to continue this morning by God's grace is for us to be transformed into the image of Christ. So let's begin looking at how Jesus ex, uh, displayed the extent of his humility. And we see that first in his contentment in verse 6. We see Jesus' humility in his contentment in verse 6. If you're taking notes, that's, that's your first blank there. Extent of Jesus' humility is displayed in his contentment. Now verse 6 And I have to say, this is going to get deep, okay? Because these are some deep verses. Says, who, referring to Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, and we could probably stop there, right? What does it mean for Jesus to exist in the form of God? Now, now it's a different word for the most common word for for is, and and that's why in the New American Standard it's translated as existed. It's this idea of really existed, And that word form there, it basically means form, the outward appearance of something, the shape of something. Now, that's shocking for a Jew like Paul to talk about anyone existing in the form of God. We know what the Ten Commandments say in Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. They were commanded to not make an image of God. And here, Paul, a Jew, is saying that Jesus is the form of God. From Exodus until exile, when they were sent away from the promised land, Israel continually attempted to manipulate and manage God by minimizing him, by giving him a a form of an animal, kind of like like Aaron did in Exodus 32, verse 4. Aaron had taken from their hand the gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel. That was idolatry, to take the, the, the infinite God and to make him look like one of his creatures. To give God shape was idolatry. So we, we just have to be aware, this is, this is mind-blowing when, Jesus, when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. We also have this obvious problem, right? What does it mean for Jesus to be the form of God who is invisible? Right? Okay, so it starts getting complex here. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 1.17 describes God as the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Again, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, describes God as the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And yet Jesus was in the form of God. So really, we're going to have to explore this word form further. And one commentator describes it as this. It's form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. Okay? Form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlines it, which underlies it. So we can think about form as existing as, as, as the essential qualities and characteristics. Okay? Form is the essential qualities and characteristics. One commentator says, form perfectly expresses the inner reality. Form perfectly expresses the inner reality, what something truly is. It's more than a reflection in a mirror. That reflection in a mirror is just a picture of us, right? It's just an image of us. That doesn't go far enough with form. What is the form of God other than his invisible attributes? It's his eternality. It's his omnipotence. It's his omniscience. It's his love. It's his justice. It's his wisdom. It's those attributes which make God, God. That is the form of God. 
Now, we are stretched as finite humans using finite human language to grasp at this eternally true reality, right? And I mean, we're talking about what's eternally true. Before there was anything physical, before there was anything visible, before there was anything temporal, the Son of God existed as the invisible manifestation of all of the Father's attributes. Clear? Right? I don't know. It's just true. He existed as the invisible manifestation of all of the Father's attributes. It's tempting to say it's kind of like the brightness or the light that comes from the sun. But light is less than the sun, right? Light is a product of the sun. Maybe you could say the sunness of the sun. Now, I don't mean, I mean sun, S-U-N there, right? The, the, the thing that, that, that makes the sun the sun, that's its form. It's the essential attribute. It's not just talking about a circle in the sky form. It's not talking about the shape. It's talking about the, the essence of it. That which makes the sun the sun is the form of the, the sun. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that I had with you before the world was. The form of God may be parallel, as Paul's talking here, to that pre-creation glory of God. That, that was a glory that was there before there were any creatures to behold his glory. Before there was any physical substance, the Son of God had glory. When it was just Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity. The one God, there was glory of the Son. He was the perfect display of who the Father is, of all the Father's attributes, and yet distinct from the Father in person. He wasn't just a reflection. In verse 6, Paul parallels the form of God in the next phrase, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He parallels the form of God with the equality with God. Those are parallel phrases there. The word consider we've already seen in, in Philippians 2.3, where Paul told the Philippians to regard one another as more important than yourselves, to consider one another, to, to think in a certain way. Choosing to think is what it means to consider. So God the Son, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard, did not consider, did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, grasp here has a range of meanings. This verse does not mean that Jesus restrained himself from reaching out for equality with God. Equality is almost there. I could just reach out for it and get equality. Or that he stopped short of seizing something that didn't belong to him. That is hardly humility, right? Not reaching over your neighbor's yard and stealing a lemon is not humility. That's just obedience, right? It's just common sense. It's not years. When Satan tempted Eve, it was by becoming like God. There was no temptation for God the Son to become like God. It, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if it's not something he's reaching out for, what does it mean to be grasped? Well, one commentator explains it, and really multiple say this. When the word grasped or, or clutched is studied with words like consider or regard, the idiomatic expression refers to something already present at one's disposal. So instead, grasp means that God the Son did not regard equality with God, the quality he already possessed, as something to be used for his own advantage. Something to be maximized upon. Something to be capitalized upon. He didn't use it for his gain, for his self-promotion, for his advancement. The Son of God already had equality with God. It's what it means to be in the form of God. It's to have the essence of God, all of the attributes of God. But God the Son never used those attributes to advance himself. 
He never used equality with God for his advancement. See, the Son of God has been eternally satisfied in his personhood as the Son of God. The Son has never grasped for fatherhood, just as the Spirit never strived to be Son. In his humility, the Son has always been content being Son. He never made a play for headship. The Son never attempted a coup of his Father's reign by using his omnipotence or his sovereignty to against the Father, to subvert the Father's rule. So, to say the unspeakable, the Son never tried to get the Father to be his form or the Father to be his glory. The Son would never think about doing that because that was not in the Son's nature. The Son has been eternally content, and that is what humility is of the Son, the extent of it. Jesus' ambition only, ever, and eternally was for the Father's glory, not for his own glory. The Son has always been content in the form of the Father, equal with God in nature, submitted to his role, doing whatever the Father said. So Jesus displays in verse 6 the extent of his humility and his contentment. He never uses deity for his own advantage. To, and of course this is impossible because he's equal with God. To get himself a little bit more equal than with God. He would never do that. He's a son. So let's look at verse 7. We saw in verse 6 the extent of Jesus' humility displayed in his contentment. We see in verse 7 the extent of Jesus' humility displayed through his addition. I know it's kind of strange, but that's what happens here. He displays humility through addition, and we'll see that. So in contrast to selfishly grasping, verse 7 says that he emptied himself. And that verb emptied in the Greek is is kekenao. Except there's only one ke, but in Greek it is kenao, and that will be kind of important in a minute. In the Greek, when it says he emptied himself, the himself is emphatic. Paul is making a point. It suggests that the emptying was done by the Son of God willingly. He emptied himself, voluntarily, not forced. There was no arm twisting going on here. Emptied is used in a figurative sense. Okay? You could paraphrase it as to nullify or to make of no effect. Now, in the majority of uses in the New Testament, the, the verb emptied doesn't require knowing what was emptied. The point is not becoming less, but becoming powerless. Okay? It w- wasn't that he became less, but that he became powerless. He he. he, he emptied himself. He nullified himself. Now, that's while maintaining his omnipotence. So we're going to explore this. The Son of God did not pour out his attributes, as some have said. Perhaps you've heard of the kenosis theory. In fact, and I don't think that that song was teaching it, we we, we sang something that may give you the idea. He poured himself out uh, everything but love. Some have taught that Jesus poured out some of his attributes. He emptied himself of some attributes. But we all know that God without love is not God, right? God without holiness is not God. God without omnipotence is not God. And God without omniscience is not God. The verse does not teach that Jesus gave up the form of God. That he poured out some attributes. Isn't, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to even think that. He would no longer be equal with God. As Matthew says, one commentator, it is not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself. Okay? It's not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself. God the Son did not become less by subtraction, by subtraction, by taking away. No, God the Son became less by addition. So Paul explains this. He he really does the work for us. He emptied himself, how? Taking the form of a bondservant. Taking the form of a slave. 
This is how Jesus emptied himself, how he, in a sense, almost you could say void himself, or the NIV says made himself nothing. The, the, the danger there is that you think that he made himself nothing like he you know, is, is committing suicide here and doing this. No, but it's a good idea of, of nullifying yourself, uh, of emptying yourself, making himself nothing. Now, we see here in verse 6 the same word form. Um, I mean, in, in, in verse 7, the same word form as in verse 6. Okay. It's, again, not talking simply about appearance or shape. Jesus could have taken the, 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 the appearance of a slave, but he didn't. Jesus did grow up in Nazareth, and that was a little honored part of Israel. So much that one of his disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Jesus wasn't an actual slave of Israel. And though Jesus grew up in Israel that was oppressed by, by Rome, he wasn't a Roman slave. There were actual slaves. He could have became an actual slave. And I think that helps us understand this word form more. Jesus took on the form of a slave. Jesus took on the essential essence of a slave, the nature and characteristics of a slave, the lack of any rights. The one who eternally existed in equality with God became the slave of God. The one who existed in the form of God added to himself the form of a slave. Now, I think, and I say this cautiously, that maybe Paul uses the word slave here instead of man. You know, why doesn't it say he... he, he took on the form of a man. It may be, and I'm not certain, it may be because the essential essence of a man changed after the fall, right? Because man, humanity, became rebels. So to take on the form of a man would be to, is not what Jesus did. He took on the form of a slave. And maybe that's even closer to an understanding of what it was like to be in the garden before the fall. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking, and I know slave is a loaded word. I'm not talking about a miserable slave who's being whipped, but a slave who loves his master, who takes initiative in obedience, who loved obedience, who's 100% committed to his master's welfare. So maybe that's why he uses this, this, this word slave to escape, in a sense, saying, saying human. No, slave gets to the heart of this. And remember, Paul was, was no stranger to the word slave. He identifies himself as slave again and again and again. He loves being Christ's slave. So perhaps Paul was preventing any confusion, saying that Jesus was just like one of us, because he's not. He's different. And that explains maybe the next phrase, too. So in verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he keeps explaining, being made in the likeness of men. So this uh, verb here, being made, is contrasted to the previous verb in verse 6, existed. It's kind of, it has the sense of, of something that happens, being made, beginning, becoming, coming into the state of something. Paul here explains how Christ emptied himself. Now, likeness, in verse 7, being made in the likeness of men, doesn't mean that Jesus fell short of becoming an actual human. It does not mean that Jesus only looked like a man. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus being truly man. He ate and was hungry. He slept when he was tired. He had real emotions. He was able to die. He wasn't some Superman from an alien planet who just comes to Earth in, in all this super alienness, supermanness. He was a he came in the likeness of men, but maybe Paul uses the word likeness here to show that there is something at nature different. He was unlike any other human. He had no sin. So that you would look at him and say, This is a man. But yet he's different from the rest of us. Paul uses the same word likeness in Romans 8.3, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. He's making the difference there as well that Jesus wasn't just like us. He was human, but he wasn't a sinner. 
At the moment Mary conceived, Jesus was made in the likeness of man. The creator became created. That's shocking. The emperor of the universe became embryo in uterus. The infinite was made infant. The sovereign was swaddled. The unchanging needed to be changed. And the almighty became all needy. This is mind-blowing. This is the extent of humility here. These are unfathomable mysteries of the Son of God emptying himself. God the Son humbled himself through addition by forever, forever adding to his deity humanity. The only way that the Son of God could become less than God was by adding to God. So we see in verse 6, the extent of Jesus' humility was displayed in his contentment. We saw in verse 7 that is displayed through his addition, his addition of, of, of slavery, of humanity. And we see in verse 8, the extent of Jesus' humility was also displayed by his obedience. Displayed by his obedience. The lead verb in verse 8 is not being found in appearance as man, it's he humbled himself. Again, we see that emphatic himself there, showing the voluntary nature of Jesus' obedience. Emptying himself returns to Jesus becoming human. And then this next verb, humbling himself, refers to his life as a human, how he lived. Emptying himself was to the taking on of flesh, and humbling himself was how he lived in the flesh. Being found in appearance as a man. Appearance, it's the outward form. What's perceived by the senses. If form is the essence, right? We talked about him being in the form of God, being made the form of a slave. It's the essence. Appearance is the perception. Everyone who saw the appearance of Jesus knew he was a man. Now, some people wondered whether Jesus might be more than a man. But no one ever thought that he was less than a man. Jesus' humbling include everyone knowing that he was one of them. His glory was veiled. From simply looking, people would never know that their existence was dependent upon his sustenance of them. That their presence there in front of a holy God was dependent upon that holy God's patience with them. That their every thought was thoroughly and already known by him. They they didn't know that. Christ's humility was in his being found in appearance as a man. But Christ's humility did not stop there. It says in verse 8, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God has eternally and infinitely obeyed the Father. But in humbling himself, the obedience of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, was tested. The obedience of Jesus was tested as a creature, not in a perfect garden on a sinless earth like Adam had been tempted, but in the desert wilderness in a world cursed by sin. See, Jesus grew up in a fallen world. He, he, he went through the kinds of things that we go through. He had been hungry and exhausted. He had wept. Luke 9.58 describes Jesus, that he, that the Son of Man, Jesus himself says about himself, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just describes some of the existence that he had. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, prophetically describes Jesus, that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. That's how Jesus was treated while on earth. He was rejected. John 1, 10 through 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now Jesus had obeyed throughout living in this cursed world that rejected him. But then it says that he obeyed to the point of death. Jesus' death wasn't natural. 
He didn't have to die. It wasn't like just his time. John 10.18 describes Jesus' authority. He says that no one has taken his life away from me. He says, no one has taken my life away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He's different from us. He was given the power of his life. The power not just to die, but the power to come back to life. Mark 14 verse 34 says that even though he has the power, he didn't want to die. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I'm crushed here. Matthew 26, 39 describes Jesus' prayer. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He was obedient the whole time to the point of death, even as he says, Father, please don't let me go through this. Don't make me do this. Rescue me, Father, but I'm going to obey. He obeyed as he always had. John 15, 10 as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But Jesus' obedience didn't just go to death. Verse 8 describes, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross epitomized the extent of Jesus' obedience. Crucifixion was torture. By first century standards, one commentator says, no experience was more loathsomely degrading than this. After being shredded by whips and nailed to a cross, a naked body would be left to slowly suffocate over days. In the Roman world, the cross was so scandalous that one commentator says, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity, not to be uttered in conversation. Polite Romans wouldn't even bring up the word. For Jews, the cross was scandalous as well. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 23 in the Old Testament, describes that even when someone was killed on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Someone who is hanged is cursed of God. Paul uses the idea later in Galatians 3.13, how Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. For the Jews, this, 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 this was becoming as not part of Israel, outside of God's people, rejected, outcast, despised, cursed. I don't know that there's anything more humbling in the first century world not just then for crucifixion, but then for a godly, obedient Jew to be killed on a Roman cross. There was nothing more humiliating in the whole world. If any Jew would have been humiliated by crucifixion, how much more so Jesus? His friends had abandoned him. Peter had disowned him. Matthew 26, verses 67 to 68 describes how the soldiers spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Matthew 27, verses 41 to 42. The chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. They mocked him. Jesus stayed on the cross because he was obedient to the Father, not because the nails held him there. In humility, the one who will judge all men had been tried in a court of men. The one who is infinitely glorious was disfigured beyond recognition. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power was so weak that he couldn't even carry his own cross. The one who is the word of God had words of mockery hung over his head. The one who clothed the fields with flowers and the night sky with stars was left unclothed for all to gawk at. That's how humble he was. But most of all, Jesus' humility is seen when the Father pours out his wrath on his innocent Son for the crimes his Father knew he didn't commit. 
1 Peter 2, verse 24 describes what happened. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. It was our sins in his body on the cross. See, in humility, Jesus stayed upon the cross, not held by nails, but held by his humble obedience to the Father. Staying until the full wrath of God for the sins of his people, for the sins of us had been satisfied, had been quenched, had been extinguished. That is humility to the point of death. What humility Jesus had to bear the weight of the disgraceful and shameful things that we have said and done. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to be our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is hope for you today. Romans 3.22 says that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. If you do not have Christ's righteousness yet, there is hope for you if you believe in him. Look your eyes to Jesus on the cross and be saved. You have no hope of taking God's punishment upon yourself. Jesus could extinguish God's wrath because he was perfect, because he was infinite. You cannot extinguish God's wrath. It will go forever, so turn to him and be saved. There's hope for you because of his humility. Now, there are so many responses we could have to Jesus' humility. And we could probably end here, right? We could respond with silence. We could respond in thankfulness. We could start singing again and respond in worship. We could respond in repentance for all kinds of sins. But Paul's primary purpose in revealing the extent of Jesus' humanity was our, I mean, Jesus' humility was our humility. So now that we've seen Jesus' humility, let's be exhorted toward Jesus' humility. Because that's Paul's primary purpose here. In verse 5, we've already looked at that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you are like me, these verses this morning leave you devastated, right? Because that's not our humility. We read of Jesus' contentment in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And unlike our Savior, Savior, we are seldom content bringing glory to the Father. Instead, we're often ambitious for our own glory. We often grab the mic, we redirect the spotlight, and we attempt to steal the scene. We seek to wrestle the crown from our king's brow and the scepter from his hand. Sometimes we do this through the stupid jokes we make, the way we drop names of people we know, or we mention our degrees, we brag about our experiences or accomplishments, or we repeat even self-deprecating statements to bring attention to ourselves. Jesus had infinite resources but never used them to his advantage. Unlike him, we are dependent for every resource, but we often use them for our advantage, to draw attention to ourselves, to fill others' minds with our own image. That is not like the contentment of Jesus. In verse 7, we saw how Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Unlike our Savior, we cannot empty ourselves by taking on the form of a slave. It's impossible, in a sense, by creation order. We were, in a sense, originally designed as slaves. And we were, in a sense, remade as slaves through, through redemption. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 19-20, that you're not your, your own, for you've been bought with a price. But yet, how often do we fight for what we want? And we obsess over what we deserve, how we deserve to be treated. We rant on about how someone fell short of our rights. 
and how, unlike our Savior who is made in the likeness of men, we seek to distinguish ourselves from one another, from those around us. We try to stand out, trying to be different from others, smarter than them, or wittier, or wiser, or maybe quieter, more creative, or more likable, or more sensitive, or more independent, or maybe even more humble than others. Not one among many, but one above the many. Attempting at times everything to distinguish ourselves from those around us. That is not at all like our Savior. Who is content to be made in the likeness of men. And in verse 8, we read of Jesus' obedience. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ humbled himself by becoming a creature and then obeying like a creature. While on earth, Jesus said his food was to do his Father's will. But how often do we consume a daily diet of self-will? How often do we think we know better than our king's commands? Often we don't prioritize his commands in the pursuit of his pleasure. We stumble upon them as we scamper after our own pleasure. Like, oh, there's a command that says I can't do that. Rather than saying, what are your commands for me today that I might go and obey? That's what Jesus did. That's what humility is. It's embracing being a creature. The extent of Jesus' humility was displayed through the extent of his obedience. He doesn't just obey to the point of death, but to the death on the cross. Discomfort did not stop Jesus from obeying. Pain did not get in the way of obedience. Shame did not get in the way of obedience. Rejection did not get in the way of obedience. Hardship did not get in the way of obedience. So from the creator of the universe, we learn what it means to be a creature. From the king of the universe, we learn what it means to be a subject. And from the sovereign, we learn what it means to be a slave. The Apostle Paul is calling us this morning to do the impossible. I know this feels weighty, right? I hope this feels weighty. Paul wanted it that way. He could have said, be humble like me. We probably would still say, we got a lot to go. But Paul actually said, be humble like Jesus. And then he takes us to the height of Jesus' humility and says, see how far you have to go? It is infinitely more likely for me to learn to play Le- Le- LeBron James, to play like LeBron James. It is infinitely more likely for me to school LeBron James in one-on-one basketball than it is for me to be humble like Jesus Christ. I mean, I've got a chance to beat LeBron James. I do not have a chance to reach the heights of Christ's humility. The distance between my basketball skills and LeBron James is really great. None of you have had that pleasure yet. But the distance between my humility and that of Jesus Christ is infinite. And yet, God, who's not promised to make me like LeBron James, has promised to make me and each of his people, like his son. Let's listen to the sweet words of 1 John 3, verses 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And that's our hope. We're going to see Christ, and we're going to become like Christ. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In his humility, Christ has shown us how humble we will be for eternity. So now is the time to purify ourselves even as he is pure. Now is the time for us to glorify him by choosing to become humble like him. So Philippians 2, 3-5. through Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have to finish as we began this morning. 
We can only have the humility of Christ if we have Christ living in us. In this life, you will not be like Christ fully. Not yet. Not until we see him as he is. But we can be like him truly. We can become increasingly humble like Christ if we are unified with Christ. If we have him living inside of us. Let's pray together. Father, we are undone. We have seen your Son in his glory. Your Son who was in your form, who has your attributes, who had equality with you. And he's taught us how to be a slave and how to obey to the point of death. And Lord, we we see the command in your word. And perhaps, as never before, I see, Lord, I need a savior. I can't fulfill this command. I can't be what you intended humans to be on my own. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that Christ obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Christ humbled himself so that we can become new creatures, so that we can become the righteousness of God. We are so thankful that he has absorbed your wrath so that we can have his righteousness, so that we can be made new. Oh, Father, we come before you and we confess that we need your help, that we cannot do this, that we, that we are, are, are in ourselves empty, having no capacity outside of union with Christ, Lord. We confess that we fall so short of desire, Lord. We've seen the heights of Jesus' humility, and if we are in him, our soul cries out, Lord, please do this. But yet, Lord, we don't want it the way that we ought to want it. So, Lord, we thank you. We rejoice in the work that you are doing in us. We want to be like your son. We want to be as pleasing to you as your son is in all. Uh, we, we can say, Lord, as we commit to working hard at humility, Lord, we commit to not being concerned of, of our own interests, but being concerned of those of others, Lord. We commit to becoming like Jesus, to, become, to think like Jesus thought, to be as humble as Jesus was humble, Lord, but we confess, Lord, we cannot do this without the resources of Christ. So please, Lord God, Father, be transforming us into the image of your Son so that as he brought you glory, we might be able to bring him glory. Lord, we, we, we need you. We can't do this with, without you. In Jesus' name, amen.